Welcome to Future Hindsight. I'm Mila Atmos. Our guest on Future Hindsight today is Nick Ehrman. He's the founder and president of Blue Engine, an organization that brings together teams of teachers working in historically oppressed communities to reimagine the classroom experience for all students, leading to dramatic gains in academic achievement. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you. You have extensive experience in education, starting as a fourth grade teacher for Teach for America. Over time, you discovered that you had a misperception about what you thought was the problem with the connection between high school and college. You started Blue Engine to address what you came to see was the real issue. What was the problem that you were trying to solve? I think specifically with Blue Engine, I was struck by a really alarming statistic. Of the 27 fourth graders who were in that room back in the fall of 2000, working with them over the course of a decade, a good chunk of them were accepted into some form of higher ed. Roughly two-thirds went on to some form of college. But only two of 27 finished with a degree. So I became really, really obsessed, I don't think is an overstatement, just really both struck by how much talent was moving in a revolving door, sort of in and out of higher education, and then whether or not we might be creating a society where being eligible for enrollment is so different than being ready to persist in complete degrees. So how do you define college readiness? I think there's a whole host of really strong literature around you know, help-seeking behaviors, habits of mind, what patterns, friendship networks, ways of sort of integrating or disrupting patterns within higher education so that all students, no matter where they come from, are healthy and have a real shot to persist to their degree. It's a pretty multidimensional definition, readiness. Here's this gap between being eligible and ready. Mm -hmm. What does the evidence say about what kinds of things help equip students with habits of mind and skills to persist and complete their degrees? What's the research base show? When it comes to education and really explosive sets of assumptions around who's responsible for success and failure, what's the role of the parents, what's the role of race, class, gender, interaction of these things, we hear these sort of assumptions in uh, all the time, right? Like maybe it's the thing that helps students persist is the financial health of their family or lack thereof, or maybe it's whether their parents had college degrees themselves. There's a whole host of explanations, but the single biggest explanation by a factor of four or five times of whether a student, especially those from low-income communities, persists to a degree is the academic rigor of their high school preparation, which isn't just an excuse to say test scores. It's the courses they take, how well they do in those courses, if those courses are rigorously taught and assessed. That was a real surprise to me that, you know, obviously to avoid remedial coursework, but also there's something that's really durable about that level of preparation. And so Blue Engine started not as some kind of silver bullet idea or lightning strike solution. It was more of a question. How would we as a set of really early educators, as a city, as a education system, make high schools more academically rigorous places? And is it going to show up when down the line students are, are transitioning to college more effectively? I think the perception is always that if you are from an underprivileged community, what prevents you from having a college degree is money. 
is to have the funds to complete a college degree. But what you're saying that that's not actually the number one problem or the highest correlation is with academic rigor. Why do you think there is not a lot of academic rigor? One of the most pervasive wrong and upside down explanations is, is that you hear all the time is that, you know, particular students are prepared for it and can handle it and others can't. Mm-hmm. I think that is just really thinly veiled and insulting and at base just flat out racist. That's one set of explanations to brush to the side. There's a number of things that interact. The first is when a teacher is challenged to teach content when students could be separated by three, four, five grade levels in terms of their reading aptitude or in terms of their you know mastery of basic skills in mathematics. It's important to preserve forms of heterogeneity because students can really benefit from being in those environments. If you're that teacher, where are you pegging your instruction, right? It's really hard to differentiate rigorously to the needs of all students, especially in cases where the achievement spreads are so wide. So I feel like what you're saying is that ideologically, the American people think about education in a way that maybe needs revamping. We need to think about higher education differently. We need to think about high school differently. What do you think is the proper frame for us to think about high school and college education today? Number one, without question, is that the systems have to be designed with the students at the center. What I mean by that is instead of thinking about policy change or what's wrong with the system by characterizing things like funding formulas or teacher quality or, or, or structure of schools, if this is all inverted, frankly, and, and starts with if every single one of the students growing up in this country, no matter where they're born, no matter what happened to them that night before, whether they're top income quartile about it, no matter who you are, you should be able to walk into a school and be embraced as a full human being. What are your needs in that moment? How can classroom environments be structured to meet those needs and help your true potential become unlocked? Helping students assert creative control over their own minds is the purpose of a really robust and lasting public education system. What's really exciting and what needs to be revamped I think, starts with the design of classrooms and, by extension, the design of schools. Any industry across the globe that's been disrupted over the last few decades has been through some combinations of innovations in technology and innovations in human capital. And so on Blue Engine's side, we are bringing teams of teachers who essentially function as apprentices, who join up with Blue Engine typically right after college for one to two year terms of service. They partner with existing, largely veteran educators and say, how can we together, you know, two or three or sometimes four people in a classroom on an apprenticeship basis, reconfigure how students come to experience that content and even the meaning of what school is for them in their lives. The changes are really, really simple and really dramatic. Jane might end up getting one-on-one tutoring at the same time that a small group of of other students are receiving direct instruction from the lead teacher in the corner, and another wall of students is working independently, and another cluster is working peer-to-peer. There are so many different configurations that can happen in the same classroom at the same time. What have you learned about what motivates high schoolers to be academically successful? I think there's really basic questions about this institution, which is, do I walk in that building? Am I seen? Am I heard? Am I a problem? Am I told I'm a problem? Am I embraced? Are the things that make me different 
somehow disqualifying for me to be a sort of young person in this space or are they harnessed and worked with and 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 mold it right am i a human being with real dignity and worth in this institution that i come to every day called mm-hmm. public school the most important things that i think would cause a young person to develop an intrinsic motivation to be able to to translate whatever energy and talent they have into forms of quote achievement really starts kind of human to human schools or any form of real collective accomplishment of anything it really rests on the integrity of those relationships and if they're safe and sound how do we collectively work with what a student is bringing to the table and then not superimpose on them some kind of solution that we design as adults for what success looks like for them Mm-hmm. But instead, flip that out from a human-centered perspective where students are enormous assets and have enormously untapped potential no matter where we are. Walk in partnership and walk side by side with people and parents in that spirit. And then co-design with them. Listen closely. What are your goals? What do you want to achieve? What role is sort of current and future education going to play in that? Does that is that the right path for you? I guess success for me is less about saying, does Jane transition successfully to college now, if you're 17 or 18 years old, has this system and the people who are responsible for equipping you with you at the cusp of adulthood, do you have true choice? That's a big question. It's our obligation to equip people with choices to take control at that point of the next steps of their lives without being boxed into something that is, quote, right or appropriate or inappropriate. Right, those are false choices. Well, they might end up becoming codified as the, quote, reality in that moment. But don't sit here and tell me with a sixth grader that you know whether or not that kid is right for X or Y or Z path in life because it's. I, I think it's basically educational malpractice any other way. Yeah, I agree. The idea that you are destined to be something based on your demographic is uh, totally false. Totally I don't, false. I don't believe in that either. But so you talk about the power of human connection in shepherding young people to find a true choice for them at the end of high school. How does Blue Engine do that in the classroom? How does it work? There's, I think there's three main components of our model. We bring teams of teachers together in classrooms, typically grades eight, nine, and 10. We work with the entire grade level of students. So they come to experience their math or English language arts coursework typically in really small group and pretty intimate learning environments, whether you're at the high end or low end of the bell curve. There's no stigma attached to Blue Engine being in your school. It's just a different... I think better, faster, more human-centered way to learn. Can I ask a question? So yeah. you're basically in the classroom all day long or only certain times of the day? Or let's say I'm I'm an eighth grader and I go to math class. So typically two of your periods per day uh-huh. in your what we call gateway skills, core academic skills, right. are taught in concert with Blue Engine, with, with teams. You still have your lead classroom teacher and then there's an additional cluster of, of young people typically teaching apprentices, we call them blue engine teaching apprentices or betas, are working in and alongside you for you know roughly 20% of your day. The goal isn't to be in every classroom in a young person's school period or school day. We have found by studying our highest performing classrooms, which in, the, in, in partnership with Blue Engine end up 
accelerating academic mastery over the course of the year by about an additional six months on top of the standard nine months that students learn. So, you know, increasing student mastery at, at a pretty fast clip. Interestingly, too, the, the students who are designated special education students end up mastering material at about twice that rate. So about 12 months of additional learning on top of the standard nine. There's some really interesting going on when you can achieve that level of personalization and, and rigor. When we've studied our highest performing teams over the past few years, three things stood out. One, is the density and integrity of the human relationships between educators, professionally, educators and young people, is it intact? Is it growing? Would students report behind closed doors that they feel seen, heard, respected, that there is a culturally responsive set of adults in their classrooms every day? That first component of this model is probably the most important. Two, if those human relationships and, and the effective practices across teams in those relationships are in good working order, it enables a level of personalization of instruction that just wouldn't be possible otherwise. And so this is where I talked about differentiation of instruction by group or one-on-one -on -one or that there's um, so many different configurations of, of instruction and interaction and feedback seeking that can happen over the span of 45 minutes when you have the presence of, of those two things. The third is when one and two are present, the levels of academic rigor, which let's define that, right? It's not just like mastering Shakespeare when you're in second grade. That's not what I mean. If your brain has access to information that is an encouragement and, and energy that is stretching literally at the molecular level, if your brain is stretching like a muscle in an appropriate way, wherever you are on the academic bell curve, that level of rigor, like anything, that stretch ends up strengthening your approach to learning. And so that we find that strong human relationships, levels of personalization, which correspond to levels of increased academic rigor is really the kind of three core drivers of, of why team teaching has been so effective. Fascinating. How can parents demand this kind of education? Public school parents. Like, what can we do about it? That's a tough one on parents. Because children can't really demand it. They sure can. I Tell me they how. they can. We're trying to figure that out right now. It's a false assumption that because you're not old enough to vote that you can't be a force for enormous pressure and change on the world of adults. Like, look what's happening all around us right now. I hope Blue Engine um, is locking arms with people on and how to really uh, both listen closely to student voice on and what kinds of schools that they would want and would design for them for their own education. Mm -hmm. um, and also the same applies to, to parents who I think are unfairly bucketed sometimes as too busy or not that engaged or I've found time and time and time again, enormously supportive, active, interested, engaged parents across the last 20 years of working in schools. And so just starting with the assumption that both students and parents are, are assets and forces for good is really the first part. We have found when you go and talk to principals and teachers in public schools as a true partner, not as a vendor, not like we're here to sell you some bell and whistle, the dynamic fundamentally changes. I am here to listen and we are here to jointly co-create something 
that is more than the sum of its parts? How can we do that together? That's just a fundamentally different way of thinking about what it means to be a partner and an advocate on an equal playing field and huge, huge, huge implications, I think, for what is possible when nonprofits are working in, in true partnership with schools. That's very exciting. I like the idea of true partnerships. Let's talk about the numbers. How many people have now graduated from high school and have gone on to college and how do they fare in comparison to your fourth graders from Washington, D.C.? We don't have good college data yet. You know, we just crossed the threshold of 10,000 students served. Okay. One really encouraging piece of data that we just got back around the high school completion is that, you know, students who had access to Blue Engine programming over a course of, of a couple of years ended up graduating from high school at, at about 10 percentage points higher than students in those same school buildings before the partnership started. And so some really, I think, encouraging signs around some of the long-term compounding impact of levels of, of academic rigor in some of the earlier grades. And yeah, we're studying this and are really, I think, excited to start to see data in the higher education space as well. You talked earlier about having real choice. If you are in New York City, which is the population that you're serving, and you're not going to college after you've had an academically rigorous high school experience, what else can you be doing? The vast majority of higher education has operated on the assumption that Something of value is being either learned or acquired during a period of time that we call college that, and here's a sort of hidden assumption, that is going to be valued in the workplace because you have that credential, right? And so you have employers who would say like, yes, you need to have a BA in order to apply for X job. I think what's going to end up happening is that entire set of assumptions is going to be blown up. So if you're in high school and there's potentially a new set of credentialing institutions, it could be you know coding boot camps, other forms of career and technical training, radical reductions in cost, and the provision of some form of credential and skill that is valued in the marketplace, what becomes of college, right? Mm -hmm. And then it becomes a question of, is this a college that's sort of reserved for a certain segment of the population because it's sort of a type of elite finishing school. So I think there's going to be an enormous proliferation. There's danger in that too, in terms of quality. There's going to be a proliferation of forms of higher education, hybrid colleges, forms of career and technical education, forms of, of boot camping. In some ways, is a really exciting time for innovations and in what, what I think is going to come um, for the next generation of young people coming up. So how should we engage around this issue? There's three things you can do. I think the first thing is just get informed, read what you can, listen to podcasts like this, understand where there's basically false choices that people are peddling their frames of reference versus what the data really says about the nature of these issues and the, and the problems and what the future is going to look like. And, you know, try to swim a little bit in the complexity of that information. I'd say the second part is get proximate, not to a quote issue, but to living, breathing, complex human beings. Get out of your space and close and start to build relationships in ways that I think challenge some of your long-held assumptions about the way that you work and the way the world works. And that proximity really, really, really matters. 
And then the third place I'd say is just get involved. Taking action can take any number of different forms. I, you know, if you're a, a soon to be college graduate listening to this podcast, look into programs that are going to bring you into schools and doing really, really good challenging work. If you are someone of means who wants to get involved as a philanthropist, research causes. This is not charity. This is an investment in really strong, measurable outcomes and and the growth in organizations that are doing that type of work. Be generous and give till it hurts. You know, in terms of taking action, start with a single step. Go volunteer to school. Go join and run for your parent-teacher organization. Um, or local school board, or do something where you are informed, proximate, and engaged. There's no room for armchair activism right now, right? This right. is a time for people to be involved in ways that I think are going to dictate the future of what this country looks like. And I hope we are following the lead of our students instead of the other way around. That's good advice. This leads me to an obvious question. How can you be a beta? How how can someone join your organization and be part of your team? Real easy. So go to www.blueengine.org and you'll see a link right on the homepage to apply and explore an opportunity to, to work alongside teams here at Blue Engine in New York over the next year or two. It's a pretty enormously life-changing opportunity. And so it'd be a privilege to work alongside folks like that. What makes you hopeful? The first thing that makes me hopeful is the team of people that we have running the organization. So I recently passed the baton as CEO to our chief operating officer, who's just enormously talented, both caretaker of the spirit part of this mission and student-facing work, and also just extraordinary leader and manager of teams. And so Ann Eidelman um, and our team of Blue Engine staff and and amazing board, gives me a lot of hope. At a time when the arc is bending backwards, I've wrestled with this question a lot. Like, what is it that we can be hopeful about? And I think what's going to happen, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now is that people are going to look back on this moment as a moment where people rose up and that this moment inspired a level of civic activism that we have not seen in 50 years. This rising generation of young people are not going to build a future with the set of terms, principles, and rules that are being bandied about nationally right now. They will not do that, right? And so that gives me enormous amount of hope. In times of uncertainty or in times of moral ambiguity or in in times of enormous stress and toxicity, it is enormously simple as a parent or as an educator or as a teacher to realize that all you have to do is look to young people and they know what they need and they will lead and we have to get out of their way. Yes, that's very powerful. Thank you for spending time with us today. Thank you. The young people of today do know what they need and they are indeed going to lead. They will demand and create higher education that centers on students and provides academic rigor, dignity, and creative control over their minds. All of us need to be proactive in co-creating the future of education. Start with the assumption that both students and parents are assets and forces for good, and form true partnerships with principals and teachers. 
get informed, get close, and get involved. What would our collective future look like if higher education equips young people with true choice at the cusp of adulthood? On the next episode of Future Hindsight, our guest is Robert Hammond. He's the executive director and one of the co-founders of Friends of the High Line, which raises the funding to maintain and operate the High Line, a one and a half mile elevated park in Manhattan. From a city standpoint, I felt like if this didn't happen, something else like it would happen. You know, by putting these people together, putting these ideas together, it was gonna lead to something. Whether it was an elevated rail line in Chelsea or some other kind of open space project, I felt like there was a value of all of us thinking and talking and organizing around these kind of issues. Until next time, I'm Mila Atmos. Thank you for listening to Future Hindsight. The executive producer and host of this program is Mila Atmos. The audio producer and music composer is Peter Fedak. The associate producer is Miriam Tsunbu. Find us online at futurehindsight.com and listen to us through your favorite streaming services. Thank you.